Well, we've been going through the book of Acts. This is our third week in the first chapter, going really slow, partly because I only have 30 minutes on a Sunday night, but partly because we want to take it in bite-sized chunks and be able to kind of absorb what's going on. And, and you might read this or hear this read and think, why are we studying this part? Why are we talking about something that seems so obscure? You know, what is this about? How, how can this uh, possibly be? Oh, that looks good. How, how can this possibly be important? Hope that's not a, a, a sign of things to come tonight. But actually, this this first section in in the book of Acts is foundational. And it's tempting for us to kind of let's rush to chapter 2 and see the outpour of the Holy Spirit and get on to the rest of the, the history of these radical things that God was doing, these miracles and so on and so forth. And, and we can miss the, the thing that Luke, the author, is trying to get us to see. He's trying to get us to see how God, uh, how God had given, since God had sent Jesus and, and sent Him with this message, sent Him with uh, as the Savior of the world, how did that truth about Jesus, how did that reality about Jesus, after He's crucified, after He's risen, how did that get from Jerusalem to the othermost parts of the world? How did the, these 12 men, or 11 men, soon as we'll see in this chapter today, 12 men, how did these guys get from just kind of being in Jerusalem, having walked with Him for three and a half years, and then now beginning to affect the world? As we saw, or as we hinted at last week, we're going to get to Acts chapter 17 and see that these men were used by God to literally turn the world upside down. That the Roman Empire was like, what are we going to do with these Christians? Because so many slaves are becoming Christians, we're not knowing what to do. So many things are changing, people are stopping, they're not worshipping these false gods anymore. And so how did that happen? And so it's, it is tempting knowing that a big part of this, of course, is the work of God's Spirit, the power of God's Spirit. But it's important for us to recognize that a big part of what God did there was to make sure that the message about Jesus was protected. That, the, uh, that, that, that Jesus had commissioned these apostles. He had asked these 12 men, he had called them apostles, which means sent out ones, and he had given them a certain authority, a certain responsibility, and they were to protect the truth about who he was. And this last part of Acts 1 kind of brings that out. So picking it up again at verse 15, it says, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, and altogether the number of names was about 120. Now, if you remember, we saw last week in verse 14 where uh, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, that the, all those that, that saw that, the disciples and those that saw that, they went back to Jerusalem, back to this upper room, probably the same place they had been meeting before Christ was crucified. Could be, actually could be the household of John Mark, his mother's household. And they go to this place, kind of their base where they're at, and they just start praying. In fact, it says specifically in verse 14 that they all continue, that's earnestly continued with one accord, that is with the same mindset in prayer and supplication. And so all these guys are together and they're praying. I mean, they're, they're seeking after God. And that's important because it tells us something about these apostles and about the other people that were with them. It tells us that these are people that recognized that they needed to do what Jesus actually told them to do. Jesus had... had uh, uh, put prayer as a top priority for those that follow Him. He wanted people to understand that they had access to Him still, that they could talk to Him still. He was the living God who ascended to heaven. He wasn't gone in that sense. So He encouraged people to pray, encouraged people to, to cry out, and also He wanted them to practice their dependence upon Him. 
He, he wanted the people that followed him to recognize they still needed his strength. Remember, Jesus had said things to his apostles like in John chapter 15, which would have been the last night before he died. Jesus said things like, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so he wanted them to keep looking to him for strength, looking to him for what they needed. And so these guys are praying earnestly with one mind, with one desire. God, we, we want to wait for what you have for us. And specifically he told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. So these guys are all praying together. And this even tells us also something about the 12 apostles specifically. And that is that even though they had uh, a unique authority, that these guys actually exercise this authority not above people but among them. Here they are praying with the same mind as the rest of the 120. All these people praying, these men and women saying, God, we need you. It wasn't as if they were there kind of separated in their, in their special robes praying over the people, or we're the mediators between you and God. No, they recognized that Jesus was the mediator between them and God. That the apostles put themselves in a, in a, in a real sense on the same level as the rest of the people. Which is, which is important. It shows us something about the church that Jesus is building. It's not a, a church built on men. He didn't just kind of raise up leadership and say, now it's all on you guys, you need to do the right thing. He, he was going to do something. He would still remain the head of his church. He would still rule his church even as he was seated in heaven. So these guys are all praying together. And it's also important to remember that these 12 apostles were really radically ordinary men. I mean, these were just really normal guys. A lot of them were fishermen. At least four were fishermen, we know. A lot of these guys were fishermen. One was a tax collector. One was a, a zealot, which is kind of like a mercenary and uh, who has political motivations. And I mean, these were just kind of normal, varied kind of people. And yet they're called to a really extraordinary kind of purpose. I love the way uh, the New Living Translation paraphrases the first part of 1 Corinthians, where it says this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God, co- called, I'm sorry, God chose those things the world considers foolish in order to shame those, things who th- shame those who think they are wise. He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all. He used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Now, that's, that's, those are words to remind us that God doesn't look at people and go, Oh yeah, yeah, you're the best. You're really, you, you have a great brain or you have a great skill and I really need that skill to make my kingdom run. He doesn't need anybody. And that's why he chose such ordinary people, so that when he begins to work, he works in a way that he gets the credit, that people trust him and don't trust them. And so these are the people that he's called, these these apostles, and they're exercising authority, but they're doing so not above people, but among people, just as ordinary folk. And so Peter stands up on this day, and and he begins to say in verse 16, Men and brethren... The scripture has to, had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now you guys probably know enough to know that Judas was one of the twelve disciples that Jesus chose, one of the twelve apostles. He was the one who betrayed Jesus. Probably in his thinking at the time, he thought, I'll force Jesus to... Uh, 
create this military coup and kind of take over from the Roman government. He's trying to force Jesus' hand. Of course, it didn't happen the way he thought. Jesus was actually ended up being arrested, beaten, and crucified. And of course, you know Judas eventually got to a place where he realized he had shed innocent blood. And so what does he do? He takes the money that he was paid, chucks it at the feet of the priests, and says, I've shed innocent blood. And then he goes and he hangs himself. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about Judas and the, the entrails that follow. But uh, I want to point out something here, though, that's really important. It's something that we, you may not have noticed before, may not even kind of put together. But it's important because it says something about, again, the authority of the apostles. Notice when Peter stands up, what he says. He says, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. In other words, it says something about how the apostles, Peter specifically, but all the apostles, viewed the, the scripture. These guys were submitted to the authority of God's word. They were submitted to scripture. And so when Peter says um, the scripture has to be fulfilled, he's, he's basically saying, look, um, whatever God says has to come to pass. When God says something, it's going to come to pass. Now, we'll talk about how we came to the conclusion about the Scripture in a second. But just know this. This is the attitude of the apostles. The, the ones who followed Jesus closest, their mindset was, what God says goes. That God had inspired the Scriptures. In their case, we're talking about the Old Testament. That's what they would be referring back to. But they had that view. Now, that by itself doesn't mean the scriptures are inspired. But it it means that that if these people who followed most closely with Jesus, who were personally trained by Jesus, if they had that view of scripture, then we need to consider having that view of scripture at least. You see what I'm saying? Now, Jesus said things that would, would back this up. I could show you lots of verses, but I'll just show you a couple. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 35, he said plainly, the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, what God has already said will come to pass. Jesus also said in in Mark chapter 13, verse 31, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In a very real sense, Jesus is equating his words with Holy Scripture. Same sort of authority. Same sort of uh, inability to be broken or, or, or to be denied. Now this is really important because when it comes to the Christian faith, when it comes to being followers of Jesus, we are, as our Muslim friends uh, call us, people of the book. That we are people that believe God has spoken through His Word, His Word incarnate, that being Jesus personally, but His Word written, that being the Scriptures as well. And the early church believed that, the early church practiced that, it was a priority to them. They saw the authority of Scripture. They, in fact, the apostles submitted to it. They didn't say, hey, I got an idea. I was doing a Bible study. I thought, here's a good point. I think we should all believe this. No, he just said, look, the Scripture has to be fulfilled. We've got to do what God's Word says. Now, but also notice what he says in this about the, about the inspiration, how he describes it. He says, Scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Do you get that? The Holy Spirit spoke it. But it was by the mouth of David. So Peter is giving us a hint at what has become a truth that we believe or a doctrine that we believe as Christians. That is, that the scripture was written by men who were inspired by God. So being written by men, it has their personalities. It's in their historical context, which means we understand it, looking at, looking at it at their historical context. But it's God-breathed, as Paul would say later on in 2 Timothy. God, one of these very words spoken out. The God who created all things, the God who's over all things, has the, uh, the ability to let a person do what they feel they need to do and still make sure the very things he wants said are said. 
And again, just so you know that this is what the apostles believed. Later on, when Peter's talking about when Peter's talking about the scripture, he says this. He says, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came by or ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. This is what they believed. They understood that when God spoke, He spoke through men, but the Spirit was telling them, here's what needs to be written. Here's the important idea, and here's the words you need to say. Now, I don't want you to, I'm not trying to say, picture a man kind of going into a trance and going, oh, and just start writing. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? That's, that's not what they did. But I'm saying that these guys understood that when God spoke, what had happened is God put a message on someone's heart. To, to, to kind of paraphrase what Jeremiah the prophet said, it burned in his heart so that he had to say what God said. He couldn't get away from it. And often that message was, was shown to be credible, was shown to be from God, because it would give specific predictions about the future that God said, listen, if anybody predicts anything in my name about the future and it doesn't come to pass, kill that guy because he's a false prophet and trying to lead you astray. I know it sounds harsh, but you get the, the idea. No one's gonna, people are going to be slow to say, hey, I think God said. They're going to make sure they know what God said, lest the entrails burst out. So, so, so there's this reality. This is the way these guys viewed Scripture. Okay, They submitted under the authority of Scripture. They saw it as God breathed, as God spoke. Now, here's what's interesting, too. We get to 18 and 19, and, and we have this what's called a parenthetical statement. In fact, in my, in my Bible, New King James, it's actually in parentheses. So this means, this is not Peter saying these things. This is Luke kind of inserting something in the middle of the record of Peter's speech. You guys following me? Okay? So Peter's trying to give some explanation to Theophilus, who he's writing. Here's a bit of historical information you need to know. So he describes Judas and what happened. He says, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Uh, who's hungry? Anybody hungry? Just wanted to know. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that it became, in their own language, Al-Keldama, that would be Aramaic, that is, field of blood. Now, here's what's interesting about this description. If you compare this to Matthew chapter 27, it seems to be a, a different story. There seems to be facts that don't fit together. And, and this is one of the things when people go, Aha! A contradiction in Scripture! I got you guys. But the truth is, if you take both accounts, they actually dovetail together really, really nicely. They work together really, really nicely. You can see, I don't mean nicely as in the picture's nice, because it's entrails, again. But I mean that you can see, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense how they're giving two perspectives of the same scene. Now, I won't get into that. We can talk about how those two things mesh afterwards if you want to ask. It is interesting. But just suffice it to say, this says, again, something about Scripture. It tells us something about this book that we are saying is inspired by God. To me, there's something very credible about a book that gives multiple, honest descriptions of the same scene. To where those, those things are not perfectly lined up. Let me illustrate what I mean by this, okay? Uh, let's say you get in a, in a, in a, in a fender bender, you get in a little bit of a car accident with, uh, with somebody, 
And it's serious enough that you need to stay where you are. The police come in, and the police are going around, and they're interviewing everyone, okay? So they interview you and your friends that are in your car, and they interview uh, the other guy and his friends who are in their car. And as they interview uh, each person in the car, they're saying the exact same story verbatim, word for word. Every single person is saying that in this car. And then every single person in the other car is saying the same story exactly verbatim. You know what the police are going to think? These guys are making it up. They're conspiring to say, make sure when the cops come that we say this so that we are seen as the good ones, okay? Now, what police usually do when they're investigating things is they separate people and they ask them to give their story and they take their details. And they don't expect all the facts to match up exactly. You know why? They know people have their perspective. What they do expect to see is those facts fit together. And if those facts fit together, they say, okay, now we have the whole story. Now we have the truth about the incident. Are you guys following me? That's how the scripture is written. That God inspired people to say, look, I want you to write down what you see. I want you to, to record what's going on. I want you to write what I'm putting heavily on your heart to write. And people do this. We have four gospel accounts written to four different audiences, giving four different perspectives. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap in the first three gospels. There's a lot of even repetition. But the truth is, the truth is, they're each given their own perspective. That breeds credibility to the story, you see. And this is why we have these honest accounts. Because God wants us to recognize, as the apostles, we can trust His Word. We can submit to the authority of His Word. Now, Scripture also says, Peter also said in 2 Peter 1.16, again, I like the way the NLT paraphrases this. It says, For we were not making up clever stories, Peter says, when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. And, and, and the reality is, guys, these guys, when they were recording Scripture, they were seeing these things from their own perspective, but they were knowing that we were saying, God, we're just saying what we see. And those things blend together, and as they blend together, they, they dovetail, and we get a great picture of who the historical Jesus really is and why we should trust him. Now, so this, these are the apostles, okay? The authority of the apostles, they exercised it among the people, not above them. They submitted to the authority of Scripture. One more thing about Scripture quickly. Notice in verse 20, he quotes, you probably have a footnote in your Bible, he quotes two different Psalms. It says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Well, this tells us something about how the apostles used the Scripture. They used it in a way that you could say is both practical and prophetic. We, we get an idea that during this 10 days when these 120 believers are just kind of meeting daily and they're praying together and they're waiting for the promise of God's Spirit to come, uh, as they're praying together during that time, you get the impression that Peter's meditating, he's thinking about the book of Psalms. Maybe this was even part of their prayer meeting. It wasn't just everyone kind of praying in turn or everyone praying at the same time. Maybe it included also scripture reading and meditation. They were reading through maybe the Psalms. But the reality is, Peter was, must have been in the Psalms, and as he's looking at the Psalms, he begins to think, okay, this is a scripture that needs to be fulfilled. Something's going on here that is about Judas. Something's being told here about our situation. We, Jesus told, chose 12 apostles, we're down to 11. And something's supposed to be done about that. Now what this tells us, listen, it tells us how the apostles wrestled with Scripture. They would look at the Old Testament and they would interpret the Old Testament through the life, 
death, resurrection, and teachings of Jesus. That's what they would do. So the, the apostles would, would teach the Old Testament. We'll see this when we get later on in, in, in Acts chapter 2. And they would interpret the Old Testament through the life, death, teachings, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? Now, if you think that sounds a little bit weird, this is exactly what Jesus did. Check it out. Okay? Luke chapter 24. This is Jesus after he's resurrected, before he's ascended to heaven. Okay? After he's resurrected, the resurrected Jesus meets these two unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus, a little town called Emmaus, right? They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. But what happens is, as he asks them, why are they sad? What's going on? What are they talking about? They go, we're talking about Jesus. He's, you know, this man, you know, are you a stranger? What do you, you don't know who Jesus is? Everyone knows who Jesus is. He was this great prophet, this great teacher, and then he gets crucified. And now everyone's saying he's resurrected. We don't know what to think. And so Jesus says, man, you're so slow to believe. And it says, at the beginning of Moses and the prophets, Old Testament, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later on in the same chapter, when Jesus is not with those two disciples, but with all the eleven disciples, it says, then Jesus said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And what does it say? He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So in other words, the apostles were taught by Jesus himself to to look at the Old Testament through his life, death, teachings, resurrection. You guys following me? Okay. So they submitted to the authority of Scripture. They handled Scripture by interpreting it through, uh, through Jesus, basically, through who Jesus was. Now in doing that, Peter comes up with this conclusion, okay, we need a 12th apostle. Now, this might not seem like an important thing to you, but understand in their thinking, they recognized that Jesus had said he was doing something new. He was building a new nation. That, that God uh, had, had revealed himself through the nation of Israel, but God was now doing something new. He was making this new entity that he would call the church. It would be made up of Jews and Gentiles together. doesn't mean that God isn't going to do something with Israel. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but this is what he was doing, Okay. And so they recognize, here's what's happening, and that just as there were 12 tribes, there would be 12 apostles. And that was the number of governance. That was who would, who would kind of have the authority over God's people, have a responsibility for God's people. So they, they thought, this is really important. They thought, this is important. And as, as Peter's meditating on Psalms, he's thinking, you know what? The Psalms seem to be indicating here. Psalm 69 talks about, uh, the psalmist is talking about his enemies and basically saying, let them lose their position because they've been my enemies. In Psalm 109, the psalmist is talking about, uh, may another enemy be replaced, one who was in, a, in an office who betrayed him, may that enemy be replaced. And he's going, man, this applies to our situation with Judas. Because Jesus chose uh, 12 of us, now we only got 11. We're supposed to do something about this, okay? So, here's what happens, right? What happens is, okay, we see that these guys decide, okay, here's what we need to do. We need to pick a 12th the, the apostle. So, verse 21, Therefore, of these men, Peter says, who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John to the day uh, when he was taken up uh, from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, 
Notice what Peter is saying has to happen for the guy who's going to take Jesus' place. To be qualified, okay, to be qualified, this person has to have been someone who's been around following these guys since John's baptism. Now, if you can remember in the Gospels, right, John the Baptist comes on the scene. He begins to tell people, hey, get your hearts ready. The, the Lord's coming. God's kingdom's going to be established, okay? And so he says that. He begins to baptize. Jesus is baptized, and from the time that Jesus is baptized, John says, you know what, I must decrease, Christ must increase, and he's just telling people, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, right? And so people begin to follow Jesus at that point. And so, for three and a half years, it wasn't just these 12 apostles who Jesus specifically poured into. Remember, there were also 70 people who Jesus actually poured into and sent out to do ministry. Not to mention a great multitude of people that were following him around from town to town. And so there had there was many other people who, who had heard the teachings of Jesus over those three and a half years, had saw the miracles of Jesus over those three and a half years, had been around when people were raised from the dead, when people were healed. They had seen these things, okay. They saw when he was arrested, or they saw at least when he was crucified. They saw him after he was resurrected. Remember, we saw last week, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that 500 people saw Jesus resurrected at once. 500 people at once. It's not some grand delusion that 500 people are having, right? 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. They probably heard him speak. Maybe even saw him eat. Which is interesting about that. It's kind of a side note that 500 people saw him resurrected and there are still only 120 together praying. Kind of shows you that even if you have perfect evidence, it still requires faith. You're still going to have to trust. Anyway, the point is though is this. One of those people who had seen Jesus teach, do miracles, die on a cross, and rise from the dead, one of those guys has to be chosen to pick. It has to be someone who's done that. Now here's why, okay? Because the role of the apostles, listen, was to give eyewitness testimony of Jesus. That was their role. That was why they existed. The authority, listen, the authority of the apostles was about protecting the accuracy of the gospel. That was the authority of the apostles. It wasn't about them becoming, you know, this great, powerful group of people. It was just about them saying, this is the truth and we're going to protect it. That's all they were there for. Now, because God called them to go out and teach others to go out, God used them in pretty radical ways. We're going to see as we go through the book of Acts, more miracles were being done through the apostles than anybody else. But that was happening because God was wanting to bring credibility and bring an authenticity and a protection around this gospel message. That was their goal, to protect the gospel message. That's why they said this person has to be this way. Well, it's interesting, after, after he says, here's the qualifications, two people get nominated. One guy named Joseph, who's also called uh, Bar Sabbas, uh, whose surname was Justice, so we get a lot of names about this guy. And another guy named Matthias. And so what happens is, they pray. It says, and they prayed. So you think, okay, we've got to pick somebody. Two guys are brought forward, and they prayed. Notice what they prayed. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. Now think about this for a second. When they say, O Lord, who are they referring to? Who are they praying to? They're praying to Jesus. When they say, listen, when they say... Uh, you, Lord, Lord, who know the hearts of all. Do you know what they're saying there? 
They're attributing to Jesus the attributes of deity. As good Jewish men, they knew nobody knew the hearts of men except God Himself. Check this out. Jeremiah the prophet said, The heart is deceitfully, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Here's the answer. Here's who knows it. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. There's a sobering sense of that word or that, that verse in the sense that God sees our hearts, our thoughts, the things that we don't want anybody else to know about. And he says, you know, I am going to give you what you deserve based on those things. It's kind of scary to think about. But there's also this reality that only God can do that. Nobody else can read your mind. People can try to do that. They can try to manipulate things, but they can't read your mind. God can know your heart. He, can know, he knows your innermost being. He knows what you desire. He knows what you need he knows who is qualified, who's not. He knows who he can use and who he can't. And so what you have here going on in the book of Acts, listen, is these apostles who are exercising their authority, not above, but among the people, who have submitted themselves to the authority of Scripture, are seeking to now just protect the accuracy of the gospel, and they're doing so by seeking direction from the living Savior. They're not just saying, Creator God, we're not sure about this Jesus stuff, so tell us what to do next. They're saying, Lord, you're alive, and so we're asking you, as you chose the first, uh, you, should, you chose us, us 12 originally, Judas is gone, tell us who the replacement is supposed to be. They're, they're doing that. Now, this is important. It's important because the apostles weren't just guys who could somehow do miracles, they weren't just guys who had witnessed grand things that Jesus had done. These were guys who knew they needed Jesus as much as anybody else. You know one of the things that keeps us ineffective in sharing Jesus with our friends who don't know, yet know Him? It's because sometimes we can act like they need Jesus more than we do. Hey man, we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners who need to be saved by grace. And it's really important for us to have the mindset that says, you know what, I'm not better than you, but I know who is best and his name is Jesus. And he died for me and he died for you. And he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven and he proved that we can trust who he is and what he's done. These guys were seeking that God with that kind of faith. Don't underestimate how much credibility goes to the gospel when you just trust the Jesus you say you trust. Don't underestimate that. But here's what they do. This seems weird to us. It says, you know, who you've chosen to take part in this ministry, they're praying, and the apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, uh, that he might go to his own place. And here's what they did to find out. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among the eleven apostles. Now here's what's interesting. I don't know if you know what lots are, but they would basically be these small stones. And what they probably would have done was write the name Matthias and the name, one of the three names of the other guy on these stones. And they would put them in this sort of uh, vessel that kind of had a, a fairly narrow opening and a wide sort of base. And they would shake up the vessel. they put it in, shake it up, and then shake it up and down. And whatever one came out, that name, that was the one that was chosen. That was casting lots. That sounds weird and superstitious to us. I'm not, I don't think the Bible says that we should still do this today. Okay, You don't see this happening anywhere else in the New Testament. But it does give us a picture of what they were expecting, what they were, what they were after. Oh, sorry, that was what I wanted. 
Proverbs says this about casting lots. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Casting lots causes contentions to cease and keeps the mighty apart. In other words, their idea of casting lots was a way to let God choose. God, you pick. God, you do what you want to do. Now, I'm pointing this out because we're talking about the authority of the apostles. These men whose writings we're trusting are from God. We're believing their testimony. This is the only reason anybody ever becomes a Christian is because they believe the testimony of the apostles. Whether or not they recognize it's from the apostles or they even read the Bible, it doesn't even make a difference. Because if someone's telling them about this Jesus who died for them and rose from the dead, they're believing that guy who believes somebody else who believes somebody else who believed the Gospels. You getting me? So the only reason we have any faith at all is because of what these guys did. And it's important for us to recognize these were not guys who were looking for a some new religious business that would make them rich. What we know about these 11 apostles, what tradition tells us at least, church history tells us, is that all of these guys died martyrs' deaths. They suffered greatly for their faith. None of them became wealthy. They became famous or maybe infamous. They were respected, yes, but they even still made mistakes. In fact, it's interesting, their mistakes are recorded in Scripture. Again, one of the great things about Scripture, there's no heroes but Jesus in Scripture. But they were willing to suffer and they were willing to die. Why? Because they knew that their role was to protect the accuracy of the greatest news that anybody's ever told. That God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Why? Because He was lifted up, crucified. He, as He predicted, He rose from the dead as He predicted. He paid the price for people's sins so that they could be forgiven. And no God, not just from a distance, but as we'll see next week, know God intimately that God would actually come and dwell within the people He knows.